Yo, what's up? This is Hal in Philly, and I want to welcome you to our special holiday edition of Tales of the Road Warriors! First, I'd like to wish everyone a happy whatever you're celebrating. Me? I celebrate all the holidays. I want every Christmas to be merry, every Hanukkah to be happy, every Kwanzaa to be blessed for you and yours, and a fabulous Festivus for the rest of us. Okay, second, when you have a chance, subscribe to Tales of the Road Warriors on your favorite podcast app or go to talesoftheroadwarriors.com and subscribe. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and rate this podcast five stars. It is much appreciated. Third, if you'd like to sponsor Tales of the Road Warriors, let's talk. Email me, Hal in Philly, at halinphilly at gmail.com. Okay, that's it. Time for the holiday episode with a true road warrior, Dan Navarro, best known for being in the super duo, Lowen and Navarro, writers of We Belong, the mega hit for Pat Benatar. It has since been recorded by several others and featured in many movies, TV shows, and that includes Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Rookie Bobby, Pitch Perfect, Deadpool 2, and uh, the season one finale of Dynasty, and in the season three finale of Santa Clarita Diet, and just recently featured in a Pepsi commercial. Unfortunately, we lost Eric Lowen in 2012 to ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It was a terrible blow to the songwriting community, but Dan Navarro continues to soldier on. He is a true road warrior in every sense. In fact, when I talked with Dan, he was in his car on the way from a gig the night before in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, driving to Baltimore, 45 miles away. Going into this conversation, I knew we had some mutual friends, but it wasn't until I was listening to this episode while I was editing it that I realized I had seen and heard Eric and Dan a few times at Poppy Star, where I worked. I remember being struck by their harmonies and hilarious banter. We worked for the same guy, but at different restaurants. And to be honest, I never stopped to introduce myself at the time because it was usually after a shift waiting tables in the other room and entertaining my own customers while Owen and Navarro were entertaining the customers in the bar. And I remember thinking, wow, these guys are amazing. Uh, I did stay and listen one night and I got to listen to their angelic harmonies and hilarious uh, banter between the two of them. But I couldn't stay that night because I got lucky and left with a school teacher I met at the bar. <laughs> well, I'm really glad I, I had a chance to catch up with Dan Navarro this time around. Better late than never, right? A few nights before this conversation took place, I attended a Dan Navarro show at a tiny listening room in Ardmore, PA. The owner, Laura Mann, is a singer-songwriter herself and has co-written some songs with Dan Navarro. So when he comes to town, he'll usually do a show there. Laura often sits in with Dan for several songs. All I can say is, wow, 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 wow. I'll see if I can get Laura to share some of her stories another time. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page at www.talesoftheroadwarriors.com slash Dan dash Navarro, N-A-V-A-R-R-O, as well as the full transcript. Okay, so now let's check in with Dan Navarro. How's the road treating you? 
you know, the road is good right now. It's not that, uh, you know, not that cold outside compared to yesterday. Went down to 27 degrees last night in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm on my way to Baltimore, 45 miles away. And uh, I have an afternoon uh, show. That's my last one of 2019. And uh, life is good. I uh, actually saw you for the very first time here in Philly, well, Ardmore. And you had a special guest, Laura Mann, right, playing with you. Now, how how did that uh, collaboration? Well, Laura, it, it's actually into Laura. I met through a mutual friend, who was her manager at the time, a guy named Aaron Hale, who worked with me at High Pockets back in the late seventies. And so he became a, a you know he had a band. He became a songwriter because obviously, as as no one knows better than you, everybody who works there has to play and sing. You know, the the band part didn't quite work out. He got fairly productive as a songwriter. uh, And then he, you know, got a couple of publishing deals. And then he started becoming a manager. And he said, I want you to work with this young woman that I'm working with named Laura Mann. And this was probably 25 years ago. And we've stayed in touch over the years. She's had a fairly, you know, very successful massage business. And she still pursues her musical dream, puts records out every few years and decided to open this venue. So... I was one of the early acts she booked in it about a year and a half ago. It's been, I think it's the third or the fourth time I played it. Yeah, it's gone really well. It's been, I mean, it's it, Philadelphia had always been a tough play for me. Uh, the Tin Angel, we would do reasonably well in. We only played World Cafe live and it, once and it didn't go well. And, you know, we never played the main point. Eric and I didn't do well on WXPN. So consequently, we didn't have a whole lot of, of uh, radio to push audience to us. So we were kind of slogging around a little at a time. But yeah, I'm surprised more, because Philadelphia is usually a very good place to play. A lot of musicians like Philly, but uh, they can be really hard on on, on, on an act, too. Well, the thing is that it's, it's not so much that the, the town was hard. We got our live following pretty much from radio in the early 90s. We you know put our first record out in 1990, Low and Navarro. And um, we cracked about 50 stations nationwide, and we were able to go play those areas. And the crowds were big and strong. Um, I mean, we were drawing 200 to 700 people a night, depending on where we were playing. But there were certain key cities that never came to the party. Philly never really came. I mean, we played World Cafe uh, with David Dye once, but XPN never really got into us. Our only Pennsylvania action was WYEP in Pittsburgh. You know, consequently, it's always been light for me in Pennsylvania. Never played Godfrey Daniels. Allentown wasn't really a place for us. Washington, D.C. was super, super, super strong. And I can still do eight to ten shows a year in the D.C. area. I tend to play Philadelphia once now, lately, twice a year. It's, you know, it's just the luck of the draw. Well, you seemed to, like, pack you packed the room when I was there. And uh, the crowd was great. It was a great night. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. It is a smaller audience, but I would rather, this is part of my my touring philosophy, fulfill promoter expectations. I would rather draw 50 people to a 50-seat room than 100 people to a 200-seat room. Now, it's a good room, and, and Laura's really great. And Laura and I have written together three songs over the years. We wrote one back in the 90s, one in the early 00s, and one only a few months ago. So, I mean, Literally, 90s, O's, and teens, we seem to do a song every decade. Now, you mentioned High Pockets about a minute ago. Uh, a lot of people probably 
probably don't get that reference. So you want to talk a little bit about those days? Sure. Back in, back in the 70s into the 80s, there was a restaurant in L.A. called the Great American Food and Beverage Company that um, had a flagship location in Santa Monica. And every um, employee, the hosts, hostesses, waiters, barmen, busboys, all had to perform. It was part of the ethos that you were, it was, you know, singing waiters. And unlike a lot of places where singing waiters were doing show tunes or opera or something very specialized, you do whatever you want. And there were, so a lot of songwriters and artists went through there on their way up or on their way down, uh, or as a place to stay musical while doing a reasonable day gig with a flexible schedule. They had three locations, one um, in Westwood Village called the Small Cafe that wasn't around long, and one called High Pockets, specialized in pita pocket sandwiches on top of the normal ribs and chicken and and uh, omelets and these I think things, things called the orgies that was like this massive ice cream treat. For yeah. You know, I used to work hours. behind the bar there with Lynn Blakey in the Santa Monica oh location, God, making those yep. things. These names, man, these names. I remember Lynn Blakey. <laughs> Lynn Blakey's a Facebook, Facebook friend to this day. I worked at GA a few days. I worked there for a very short time in the early 70s, uh, like 73, 74. Um, and then I kind of went away. Uh, I developed strong friendships with people over at High Pockets, which was in West Hollywood at Santa Monica and La Cienega. And uh, so in, I was hanging out there. And one day I sort of said, you know, why don't I just get paid for this? Because I'm hanging out and playing. And uh, I was working at Tower Records at the time in Westwood Village. And I realized I could work one fewer day a week, make the same exact pay plus tips and play music and hang with my friends. So I quit Tower uh, after three years. And uh, went to go work over at High Pockets, and I spent three years there. You know, the thing is, it was, to some, it was, you know, they thought they were being full-time musicians, and nobody really was. Bands came out of it, and artists came out of it. I mean, Ricky Lee Jones worked at the one in Santa Monica. Uh, Katie Segal, as, as we've talked about, you know, the, the actor who's also a musician, had a band called The Band With No Name with, um, oh my God, with Alan Miles and... and uh, Jimmy Lott and Carolyn Ray and Franny, whose last name I can't remember because she's Franny McCarty now. Yeah. McCartney. And um, they did a record for Casablanca. Uh, Peter Tork worked there for a little minute. You know, the one where I was, uh, Cindy Lee Berryhill worked there. Uh, Robert Romanus, an actor who was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, was a cook. That's right. And so people would filter through there, you know, during certain periods in, the, in their careers and their lives when they needed the steadiness of a real job except I met my lifelong music partner there, Eric Lowen. And, uh, you know, we cracked it as songwriters and became artists in Lowen and Navarro together. And that's where I met him. I wouldn't have known him otherwise. And, you know, Severin Brown was there, and Severin was a real close friend of mine. But I came in because I was close with Severin and close with a guy named Lawrence Cohen. And so I basically hung out with my two best friends and got to do this. But it also taught me something. It taught me how to perform when people were not paying attention. It taught me how to project and not just pull everything in really tightly and gave me the ability to perform with some energy. You know, we talked about Jamie Sheriff who put a record out on Polydor and has done a lot of recording since then. Jamie was the first one to turn me on to the place. He said, I'm working at this place called the Great American Food and Beverage Company. It finally closed down in the early, early to mid eighties. Sadly. Well, most of us, many of us, are, I'm still in touch with a good 
dozen people from those days. Did you go to uh, the party at Richard Barron's studio after Poppy passed away? We had a, like a reunion there. I did. And, yeah, uh, I did. And the one on Hollywood Boulevard? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did go to that party. Yeah. And um, there have been reunions since that I haven't been able to make. And there's a Facebook page for people from that era, um, you know, from both the, the three GA restaurants and also from Poppy's Star, which was a restaurant he he started after he sold out of Great American. Yeah. Poppy was a, yeah, Poppy was a figure and a half, man, a remarkable man. And uh, it was an approach to life. It was an approach to art, friendships. I mean, it was the 70s. So let's just say there was a lot of intramural dating. You know, it was a kick. So, so you met Eric Lowe in there. I met Eric Lowe in there. Eric had come to the restaurant as a customer with an artist named Bert Summer that he had um, played with on Capitol. They had a deal on Capitol. He was a side guy. And Bert is kind of, you know, Bert was an upstate New York guy who had been in hair and he had also been an artist at Woodstock. He was one of the only people who didn't make the movie at Woodstock, in Woodstock, which is, you know, unfortunate because his manager, Artie Kornfeld, was one of the organizers of Woodstock. So Eric and Bert are there at High Pockets, you know, sitting outside on the rail. Right. And they're kind of going, uh, Bert's kind of being derisive, going, look at these chumps. This is us in two years. <laughs> two years later, they got dropped by Capital. Eric went and auditioned immediately and got a job. He ended up replacing me for three weeks when I went on the road with Severin Brown and Lisa Sobel playing, you know, clubs in and around Portland and, and Seattle. When I got back, he had my gig. I was a, an, a Saturday night busboy. So they made me a Saturday night as I, they made me a daytime lunch busboy and then a daytime lunch waiter. And the tips were really dreadful. Three weeks was all it took for me to get my shift back, but they made Eric the manager. So um, <laughs> part of our legend is that we did not like each other. He was a usurper. He went from taking my job to being my boss. And uh, he was tall and blonde and beautiful. And I had a D28 and he had a D35. So Big high money oh, guild guys. I know. Well, uh, uh, Martins. Martins. Oh, okay. Good. I, I had yeah, a Guild D thirty five, so I was thinking Guild when you said that. The D thirty five and Guild is a different guitar, but yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. call because they were dreadnought shaped. That's what the D stood for. Right. And uh, I hated him. I just thought he was a dick. Um, and he did not like me much either. I thought he was full of himself, and I he thought I was full of myself. And you know, we were not wrong. One night. We're hanging out after hours and doing, you know, singing together with everybody, as we often did, because it was really the hub of our social lives. And we start to sing harmonies with somebody. We both hit the same note, heard that, and both instinctively moved to the note a third below. Both of us <laughs> heard that and both went back up to the original note. And I look at, looked at him. I made a sideways V, a sideways peace sign with my fingers and flipped them, went from the palm of my hand to the back of my hand, just basically going switch. Right. He stayed high, I stayed low, and we locked. And it was like, oh man, really? You? You're the one? Oh, and we, we it, there was nothing in my life that was ever easier or emotionally more fulfilling instantly than singing with Eric Lowen. And we had it, whatever it was, the timbres, the blend, the ability to follow each other. We both frankly sang kind of loud. 
we could sing soft, but we sang kind of loud. So we weren't really singing harmonies. We were singing competing leads when we worked together. And, you know, the, so we um, decided one day, you know what, we, we're playing Saturday nights now. It was the hot night at the restaurant. Let's learn some songs to up the ante. And we rehearsed some things. And we were packed from that moment on. Literally, Saturday nights were absolutely jam-packed always. And it became really fun. We did that for close to two years, 79 into 80. And then at the very beginning of 1980, I left to go live in London. I wanted to start a band with him. He didn't want to. And a lot wasn't working for me anymore. I'd broken up with my girlfriend. And I, I had a second job and my boss was going to move to London. And he, uh, you know, I'm losing my second job. My girlfriend's gone. My friend doesn't want to start a band. So I said, you know what? I'm going to London with you. And uh, right before I moved, Eric said, hey, I'm ready. Let's start a band. And I went, you know what, man? I'm moving. I'm moving overseas. So for a year, we communicated by telephone from London to L.A., and that's where our friendship really deepened. And I came back and we joined a band that was led by another High Pockets guy named Mark Bryson. The band was called Bonmont. We used to play all the local clubs, Manamongs West, Manamongs East, you know, Blue Lagoon, Hop Sings, yeah. all of that. And uh, my, Did you play at my place? Uh, we did at my place once or twice. Uh, we weren't quite slick enough for at my place because we were kind of trying to do the, the skinny tie band thing. Uh, truth told that we were, we wound up, we discovered this later. We didn't do it on purpose. As they came out, we realized we were crossed between Huey Lewis and the news and men at work. We did not copy them. They came out after us. Well, they didn't copy us. They didn't know anything about us, Right. but well, that's a good, that's a it, good blend. I like that. It was, but we were pushing a sound that was already hits for somebody else. So it sounded like we were following. Gotcha. So we never, we never got signed and we got close a couple of times. Uh, but out of that, I get sort of asked to leave the band in 1983. I got came back from England in 81 and joined that band and worked with steady into 81, 82, and half 83. I leave the band, and I'm dying on the vine, and Eric calls up one day and says, hey, let's write a song together. Uh, he was not uh, much of a writer. He'd written four songs in his whole life, three of them with me. I'd been a steady writer. I joined the band because he... Um, basically said, we're doing a couple of your songs. Why don't you come join the band? And they did that when I came home from England. Well, so basically Eric and I decided to get together to write this song for no reason. And that was We Belong. And a year later, it changed our lives. I mean, it kind of just, I mean, there isn't anything successful I've ever done in my life that was easier than that. It, it's like, it's like all the doors opened. How did uh, it, how did you first learn that you know about the song being picked up and 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 like, like what and your reaction? What was that like? Well, I mean, I, I wanted to soil myself basically. He um, <laughs> Eric started taking it around to publishers, and interestingly, of course, typical of our relationship, I said, "For God's sake, don't put the ballad on it. Put all the up tempo stuff. They're not even going to bother to listen to the ballad. The demo sucks." Well, he did it anyway. He said, sure, absolutely, anything you say. And then he did what he pleased. And he took it around to several publishers, all of whom rejected it. I mean, CBS Music, Bug Music. I think we took it to Alma Irving. Uh, and took it to, uh, we took it to a friend who was a, uh, an A&R guy at EMI Records. And he loved it and wanted to place it with somebody, but wasn't able to get it off the ground. 
we had a near placement with an, an artist. We didn't really want to do it. And uh, so we went back to Jamie Cohen, who was the guy at EMI, and said, man, you got to do something. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to the publishing guy. He gave it to the publishing guy, and the publishing guy sat on it for about three or four months. He calls up at one point and said, there's, there's nothing for us here. Thanks very much. Two months later, out of the blue, he calls up Eric and says, I want you to do a handshake deal with me. I've got an idea for this song for a major female artist. And one week later, we found out it was, it was Pam Benatar. Wow. Now, since then, we're of the belief that it either intentionally or accidentally ended up in a box of tapes. And they realized they didn't have a deal on the song. That they'd sort of, let's just throw this in too. And she pulled that out of the box and said, I want to do this one. Huh. I give her credit for amazing, amazing years to hear what she could do with it and what it would be. Um, it's... And it, it blew our minds. I, I was still, I was working in advertising. Eric had already closed High Pockets and was painting houses part-time. Well, it absolutely spoke to her, obviously. It really did. She was, she was pregnant with her first child. She wanted to do something different than all the rockers she was getting, and it worked. You know, so that's what kind of did it. I, we were terrified. I mean, sitting there realizing that she had won three Grammys in a row, or maybe even four. My first thought is, oh, my God, this is first single. This is going to be a hit. I can't. I mean, I'm, I was stunned. And we just rode that wave. Uh, I didn't quit my job till six months after the record came out. But... We decided to dive head first. We had friends saying, you know, Dan, keep your day job. Take the money and buy a house. And I went, no, I'm diving. I want to, you know, <laughs> I've wanted this. And I'm, I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to take the, the break and, and go for this. And dove head first into the professional songwriter world. Started another band to try to capitalize on it. But I wasn't in that band because I'd quit the other one. That was a source of a lot of friction. I did that for three years and then said, you know, I'm not digging this friction. I'm going to start working with other people because I want to sing. The, that, the band that came up out of it was called 20 Times. And uh, Eric, you know, it was not doing well. It was another situation of three years and not getting a deal. Where was so, Eric all this time? He said, I got, Eric was the lead singer of that band. And I was writing with them for them and I was helping produce them, but I wasn't a member of the band and I'd not like that. Part of it is when the band started, I was still working my day job. I didn't really, they didn't want three guitar players and I didn't play keyboards very well. Right. So they just said, there's no real spot for you, which I resented. I did get invited into the band at the very end, just standing there playing tambourine and singing, you know, co-leads like Gene Clark used to with the birds. And that lasted one show before Three of the other guys quit to do other things, and the band broke up. But in the meantime, right around then, Eric said, I've got this idea. Let's go play. Let's go to No Amp Night at the Central, which is now the Viper Room. Right. And let's do this acoustic duo we've been talking about for seven years. We decided to do it just as a lark. Three months later, we started doing a weekly at a seafood restaurant in Mar Vista called The Breakaway. Oh. Uh... That actually became the hub of a scene. Right. When we started, it wasn't, but we were doing two sets and we were given a third set away to friends. And we started curating a night there every Wednesday night for two years. 
and that's what I used to do the open mic at the Mar Vista at the at the breakaway. Yeah, and you know, Jay Titsky was booking it, and we were one of the first acts he booked. We held down Wednesday nights, and you know, there was something about the regular play and doing it every week that it started to get good. And we also started develop to develop a stage persona that was essentially no different than Smothers Brothers. We started making fun of each other and cracking jokes at each other's expense. And then we would do these gut-wrenching ballads and then make more <laughs> jokes at each other's expense. You know, we kind of learned the stage crap that we never quite learned in the old days. I mean, by the time I started doing it, man, I was 1988, I was 36 years old. And I'm starting to play out. After five or six years, I mean, that was, that was four years, really, because I left, I left Bon Mott in 83, so five years of not playing in a band or singing regularly. And all of a sudden, I'm in a duo, and I had to get my guitar chops up, and I had to, you know, get my voice so it didn't wear out, and it happened. Somebody walked in one night who didn't know who the hell we were and didn't know how uncool we were. He had come in because we had sung backups on a record on this guy's label. This was Stephen Powers, Older Chameleon. We sang on a Walking Wounded record. He goes, who are these backing singers? You know, that's Lowen Navarro. So he came in to see us, and... He offered us a deal on Chameleon. And we're going like, do you have any idea how uncool we are? <laughs> he goes, I don't know. I like what I heard. So we did our first record at 38 and 39 years old, figuring, well, we'll just, 37 and 38, we're going, let's see how long we can keep this ball in the air. And uh, December 14th is, uh, the 2019 is the 30th anniversary of starting the first album. That is very cool. So you really weren't as uncool as you thought. When I was 36, 36 right. years old, I was bartending at Jerry's Famous Deli. Oh, my so God. I was rubbing elbows with very famous people, but usually by accident, I would brush their elbow while setting their drink down. Well, it was there, <laughs> but for the grace of God, man, because like I say, we got lucky with We Belong. I, I consider it to be a fluke. But because we had the energy and, of course, the income to be able to just dive into the community of songwriters... And we did get a publishing deal in 86. Um, we're writing with everybody. We're pitching to everybody. We managed a couple of cuts here and there. Um, Dion Warwick cut one of my songs. Ford Tops cut one of Eric's. Uh, none of them were hits, but they were album tracks in the day when an album track could make you some money. Yeah, you could no, make 10, something. 15 grand off a of ride along on a million selling album by having an album track. In 87, Really, the very tail end of 86, we had a bit of another bit of good fortune in that we started, uh, we became friends with Susanna Hoffs of the Bangles. And they were getting ready to make another record, and they were trying to handle it all themselves. So she said, let's write together. And we wrote two songs with her that ended up on, on the, uh, one of them ended up on the final Bangles album. One of them later ended up as an unreleased track on the greatest hits, along with that other track. And Michael Steele from the Bangles, I had actually known from my Tower Records days in the late 70s. So she's kind of going like, well, here you are. She knew that I'd become a songwriter and had a cut when I was at the record store. So she said, well, let's write together. So I wrote a song with her, David White and Eric that also ended up on a Bangles record. So I was getting cuts here and there and some of them were doing better than others. But we still wanted to be artists and i gotta say from the moment we got signed to chameleon we almost never wrote songs to try to pitch we wrote songs for us and they were artist songs instead of 
generic cut songs, which means our cuts went way down. We still got cuts, but very, very rarely. But we were doing great on the road and the songwriting royalties were holding up. Coincidentally with that, in 88, I started doing session work as a singer, again, at 36 years old. I broke into the session world for the first time doing Spanish language jingles. And from there, I moved it into Spanish and English language movies. Then it moved into voiceovers. And I'm still doing oh, you know, a couple of movies a year. I meant to ask you, do you know Lombardo Boyar? I don't. I don't know Lombardo Boyar. Oh, okay. Is that a voiceover guy? Oh, yeah. He, he, yeah. he was on Happy Feet, and he did the voice of the, uh, the mariachi in Coco. That's interesting, because I did both movies. I did uh, the voice of, uh, I sang Leader of the Pack in Happy Feet for the character that um, uh, Carlos Alasraki voiced, but I yeah. did the vocal on that. I did a couple of other tunes. That's and where I thought Coco, you might have I met was, him. Yeah, but uh, yeah. then again, when you do voiceovers, you don't always meet the people you work with. Because no, you don't see the people you work with so. at all. Yeah. And um, in fact, I left the studio. I, went, uh, I also did... Um, backing vocals with with a, a 10 voice group on two songs on coco uh, proud corazon and un poco loco so we worked on the same things but i've never met him well i'll tell you what uh, do you know who he is I, I don't know anything about him no oh okay well anyway if you want to really get a, a taste of lombardo boyar there's a movie it's on sci-fi network but it, but you can find it online it's called big ass spider okay and he plays in a, a he he plays a security guard who teams up with a an exterminator played by uh, Greg G G uh, Grunberg, and they have to kill this spider that was created in a laboratory that grows to immense proportions. But it's very tongue in cheek. I'll check it out. The voice actor community is a very tightly knit group of people. Um, I know a lot of people in it, um, partly because I started in in two thousand doing Walla, which is unidentifiable background sounds, uh, not a particular character on Family Guy and American Dad. It's a side career that has brought me 31 years of Screen Actors Guild health insurance, two pensions, one in SAG and one in AFTRA that I can literally draw anytime I want. So somehow in the midst of this songwriter thing and artist thing, I developed this voice thing. And so I've really had these three separate areas of career on discrete paths that don't really cross you know and it's been it's been weird and fun but part of it is just the whole mentality of you ask me if i can do something unless it's sing like cindy lopper i'll say yes and if i don't know how to do it i'll learn by morning and if you have to dress in a pink gown so help you have me. to dress in a pink gown you do it and that's that was <laughs> such a fun session to do i dress in a pink uh, choir robe for uh, to, sing, to sing backups to Camila Cabello on the uh, on the Ellen Show that aired two days ago. I'm guilty. I checked it out. I'm getting a lot of heat for that in a fun way of people going, "Oh, cutie pie!" <laughs> but you know, it's good fun, man. And and the thing is that I know people who do what we do who kind of say, "Well, I don't do this or I don't do that." And my attitude is, I'll do anything. I mean, it's not that I don't have pride or scruples, what it is, is I take a lot of pride in fulfilling a job. You know, someone says, can you do this? And I can pull it off. I enjoy that. I take pride in it. There isn't 
virtually anything I'm going to say, I can't do that. Now, that said, at least three times, people have said, want to hire you to do a, a country vocal for Coca-Cola. And I went, you know, that's really cool, but I know somebody better, and I'll give them their number, which has always endeared me to that producer who goes, you've given up a lot of money here. I go, yeah, but you're going to be much happier with what this guy does. And they call me later. You know, it's happened more than a couple of times. It's just how I roll. I can dig it. You know, I've, I've been recommended for things. There was a period of time when Billy Steinberg was sending me co-writes that he didn't have time to do. You know, not as it turned out, none of them turned into anything, but that's not the point. You know, I mean, there's nothing I would love more than Billy Steinberg's cast-offs, and I don't mean that derisively. I mean it's exactly the opposite. If he didn't have time, to, a recommendation from Billy counts for a lot in my world. When you did co-writes uh, and collaborations with others, did, did you make appointments to get together and sit in the same room, or did you do it over the phone? Like how, how, did, how did that usually work with it. you? I've done it every which way. Usually I get in the same room and try to start for something from scratch. Sometimes something would happen. Sometimes it wouldn't. I've done situations where I've been brought in to doctor existing songs. Uh, I've done a few co-writes over the phone. Um, Skype is much easier because you can see people. Yeah. And actually, nowadays, FaceTime is, is the easiest because I'm a Mac guy and an iPhone guy. But way back in the 90s, uh, I did a co-write with Gretchen Peters that was by fax. She faxed us a lyric. I moved some things around, wrote some stuff in there, and sent it back to her. And like three hours later, she goes, that was fastest, and the lyric spoke to me. We added like maybe one verse to what she did, and we kind of moved some lines around. But we did that by fax. This is way, this is, you know, I had a computer, but I didn't really have email because I wasn't on the internet. This was uh, 90, oh God, what year was that? It was 95. I don't think I got on the internet until 97. I must say, the other night when I saw you at the living room, and the sh I thought the show was over, you got down off the stage, you you did this yep. whole uh, acoustic with no electricity, and it was like a sing-along at a campfire. That was it's great. It's pretty wild. It's, it's, you know, it, it's really dynamic. People, It's not passive silence. People have to keep stone quiet or they can't hear. And a thousand people will keep stone quiet if you're in that situation and they know they're not going to hear you any other way. So the, when they're allowed to cheer, the, it's usually an explosion. Um, we've been doing it for, you know, I mean, we, now I, of course, Eric Lowen, retired in 2008 and passed away in 2012 in ALS. But I, uh, I've been doing it since we started in 1989, just because it was a fun, cool, weird thing to do. And I've seen others are, you know, we opened for the Bodine 17 shows in 1993 and they started doing it. Once in a while, they would credit us. I didn't really mind that they, I mean, I, I got it from Steve Wynn, you know, so I, I didn't make it up. I don't, I didn't mind that they didn't credit us and we didn't own it. But it did lead to a pretty close friendship with Sam Giannis of the Bodines. Now he, he went on his own about, about eight years ago because he basically said, you taught, you guys taught me something about the essence of true performance. These are the kinds of things that, you know, the road stories are often about logistical stories, highways, hotels, um, overbearing fans, blown up sound systems. But the thing about the road story is the ability to continue to produce a performance that, you know, you can choose to have your shtick or your set or your stage pattern and do it every night. But 
Lowen and I got into the habit of not preparing anything with regard to that. We would see how the room felt and we would put it out there. Um, I mean, I worked from a set list the other night at the living room. I also veered off the set list about eight songs in and, and changed it up because I felt the room. That's the part of this that is, to me, so inspiring that makes it worth continuing to do 30 years in, you know, a million miles, probably. And more highways than I can count. This trip right now, it's looking like I'm going to finish up at about 575 miles. In August, I did 1,300 miles in five days on the ground. I fly to a hub city and drive around. This process is, is in, you know, yeah, it's grueling. It's hard. And I know a lot of people who absolutely hate it. I'm not one of them. I thrive on this. I hope I never have to retire. I hope that, you know, either I drop dead on the road or that I'm at a point where I go, you know, I'm, I've had enough. I'm ahead of the game. I still have my health. Because the conventional wisdom is that it's not going to go away until I'm infirm and can't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. Ever think about opening up your own little place like Laura did, a little, little cafe of some kind at some point? Well, so. yes and no. Um, I have a performance concept that I do at, at music conferences where I'll stage a showcase room and present other artists called Cantina Navarro. I staged it at McCabe's Guitar Shop in, uh, at the end of October. Three young artists, I open one song, and then, uh, um, then in the encore, we do one or two songs together. And that I lead, but otherwise, as I'm presenting other artists and I MC, uh, so yeah, the idea of running an actual location uh, is on the tough side. But I'm not ruling it out, especially once if it does get to the point where traveling is tough, then I'll do it. That's what Rodney Dangerfield did, and he did that early so that he would have a hedge against the road, something that would produce some income in case he couldn't go on the road, and it became very successful. Dangerfield, um, yep. They, you have Dangerfields in New York City. Um, no, I mean, you know, some of my favorite road stories are pretty weird. Uh, and there are a few that involved, you know, let's just say brand new instant personal friends on the road. Right. Uh, you know, there's one time where uh, two women decided to invite the bass player and myself over to their house for Remy Martin and weed. And when we got there, we found out that they... Uh, Oh, did I just miss my ramp? I think I just missed my ramp. Ah, ha, ha. There's a road story. <laughs> so I was doing um, this podcast and I passed my yeah, ramp. No, it's really true. And it's only a one mile backtrack. And it's, and actually it's only, yeah, it's a one, it's a one mile backtrack. No big deal. Um, anyway, all this is to say that uh, what they did for a living were balloon arrangements and, tie-dyed sarongs so they really wanted us to put our tie the, uh, put on their tie-dyed sarongs oh, really? and so of course <laughs> we had to remove our pants to do it and the bass player had a, a prosthetic leg he had lost his leg when he was nine years old no it was below the knee he could do anything no one really knew that this is what his situation was so oh. he warns the the, what, the woman I need to warn you, I've got a fake leg. She put her hand on his arm and said, it's okay. I'm a healer. And my first thought is, I don't think you're going to be. We looked at each other, went right, pulled our pants back up and got the heck out of there. 
Because we go, you're not going to be healing this deer. Yeah, I'm a uh, healer. Oh, they've turned into a situation for a number of years where I had a fan in Annapolis, Maryland, who started buying me Irish car bombs to drink. Now, I don't know if you know what an Irish car bomb is. Of course, I was a, a bartender for 20 years. That's right. Of course, you were a bartender. Exactly right. I mean, for the general public, it's a Guinness. Um, it's a Guinness boiler maker with Bailey's and, and uh, Jameson's, Bailey's and Irish whiskey. Well, it's also intended to be guzzled. And the audience would basically sit there, watch me do this. And I'd have three or four of them in the course of the night. Uh, not the wisest of moves on stage. I mean, I quit drinking two years ago. And actually, we actually quit drinking five years ago and got completely sober two years ago. So right. those are long a thing of the past. But I remember toward the end of some of the longer sets there, kind of where tuning was relative and timing. The results were staggering. Literally, exactly. <laughs> and... Um, but it was amusing. I was always game for whatever the audience had in mind. The way that guy started with us, by the way, the guy who was buying me the Irish car bombs, was he was heckling us. <laughs> and he wouldn't stop. He was funny, but he was heckling us. And so Eric finally went, oh, for God's sake, get up here. You're going to do this? Come on up stage. So he walked on stage, and he did seven prepared minutes. He was a stand-up. Oh, and man. he was wonderful. He was so funny. We laughed. And part of the thing that I loved about the road was rather than sitting there going, I can't believe this asshole did this, we were going, what's in there? Let's make something of this. Let's give the audience something to play with. Let's, you know, and we made lemonade. The guy is to this day a dear friend. I literally just sang at his wedding three months ago. Okay. Um, and he built me a guitar as a gift. He's a dear friend. I'm going to see him tonight at the house concert I'm doing. And this is out of a guy who erupted by heckling us at a 350 seat sellout that could have easily been us going uh, security, get this guy out of here. We didn't do that. <laughs> no, this is, you, this is, we went with it. You boosted his career. Well, we boosted his career, but we also boosted the, the audience was coming undone. They were laughing so hard. His name was Brett Bean. He's a great guy. I got to tell you, man, it was one of the best, you know, and, and the road stories, the road stories are about looking at whatever it is that's happening and finding the good fortune in it rather than the hard, the dark side, the hard part. You know, there's something good in every weird situation that happens on the road. You just got to be open to it and willing to see it. Um, I've laughed my butt off at more. Oh, good God. I've broken strings. I've broken uh, Eric's broken headstocks off guitars. I had a capo on the wrong fret for half of a song once and realized halfway through it, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I forgot the words. The I forgot the opening lyric to a song and we vamped until I was ready three and a half minutes before I went, it's not coming. And we'd stopped and changed songs and laughed our heads off. I know that feeling. Now, what's, what's up and coming in the Dan Navarro uh, universe? You know, I'm booked steady through the end of april and uh right now the summer's wide open but i'm already booking um september october and november uh, i'm not sure why september why the summer's not happening but i'm doing um uh four shows around the dc area uh in early january i have a songwriting workshop i do in washington dc that's happening january 5th that's called songwriting in the creative muse after that i'm doing the 30a festival in uh, the south walton beach florida on the panhandle it's a wonderful festival 
I do the when Folk Alliance Conference the weekend. That is January like 16th, January 17th to 20th. And it's a really cool, fun festival. 200 songwriters, 25 venues. And it's a little bit like a South by Southwest, except it's spread out over a uh, over a 25-mile stretch in some be- in a beautiful part of Florida uh, on the Panhandle with the, you know, the south-facing Gulf Coast. That sounds um, wonderful. Oh, it's really, really cool. And, and all of my friends do it. Um, so it's a, you know, I play every day and they put us up and they feed us and we play, you know, we have two person rounds and three person rounds and solo shows and day and night. It's, it's in its 11th year and it's a really cool festival. Early February, I'm doing a, a series of deadhead shows from the standpoint that I'm going to play in Newton, Kansas in a house concert, my first show in Kansas ever. Followed the next day by um, a show uh, in St. Joseph, Minnesota, where I've also never played. I can't drive it. It's a 12-hour drive, so I'm going to fly it. Then I've got three days off. Then I've got two shows in Minnesota, then a show in Chicago, then one in Port Clinton, Ohio. I go home for two days and go back out again. So I'm out for three weeks in January, three weeks in February. I do the upper Midwest every winter toward the... uh, end of March, I'm doing Phoenix. Um, in April, I'm doing the Northeast, playing in Cambridge, New York, uh, probably Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, but a bit of Cambridge, Massachusetts as well. Um, again, with the I'm doing, I think, New York. And, you know, I do New England usually every April. I also do it. I just did it. I just did New York a couple of days ago. You know, it's moving around a lot. Everything's on my website at dandabarrow.com and on my Facebook page. And um, I have two Facebook pages. I have a personal one that I talk more, but there's the one that's uh, where I have all my music information at Dan Navarro Music and all the events are there. And oh, one, the high point of, of my years, uh, go ahead. You recently did a project with James Lee Stanley, the yep. All Wood and Lead. All wood and lead. James Lee is known for his all wood and series. He did two records with John Batdorf called All Wood and Stones, which are acoustic reworkings of Stones tunes. And it was really good. He did all wood and doors with Cliff Eberhardt. And I went to him a couple of years ago and just said, dude, I want to do this with you. All wood and lead. We have reinvented these songs. They're not strictly acoustic, but they're complete reinventions. And I have to tell you, it's it's a wonderful record. And the chances are very good we are going to get skewered because a lot of to a lot of people, Led Zeppelin is sacrosanct. Yeah. But, you know, we just decided to do them our way. Um, we're right now. We only have one tour date booked in November of next year, but I want to try to get us out earlier. Uh, you know, the main thing is that I'm you know, we're both pretty busy solo guys and I'm and I'm booked. Um, but we're going to try to fit it in. It is my goal to basically leave Los Angeles on January 3rd and not go home till Christmas. That would be success in my life, you know? Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> the, road, the road is a teacher. The road is a mistress. The road is a, is a dear friend. It's a bugaboo. It's, um, it's crazy making. It's awesomely inspiring because it is real. It's abs- I have learned this country on the ground. And from that standpoint... It is, it is just nothing but wonderful. I enjoy the process, and I hope to. I hope that I'm done with it by the time that I stop. And, well, know, I hope I get to see you old, again before you're done with it. I know you'll be back in Philly uh, in April, uh, back at the living room. 
Yeah, I am counting on a minimum of three more years till I'm 70. I don't really want to stop. I honestly believe that I can do this till I'm 75 without much issue. I'm, I'm not afraid to say because it's out there on Google. Uh, I'm 67 years old. I've been, you know, I've been touring for 30 years. I didn't really start touring until I was 37. And the, the whole thing to me is about how long can I keep this doing? Because I'm not doing this by accident. I'm not doing it by default. And I'm not doing it because I need the money, even though the money is, you know, it's not riches, man. It's not even close. It's, it's working man's income. But I really love doing it. I love the process. And so my attitude is bring it on. And, and I get to see people. I wouldn't, you know, we have a background that overlaps, but I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for the road. So Yeah, precisely. And I think you're going to hit 70 easily. I always talk about Les Paul, who played every Friday night in a little club in upstate New York till he was 94. He just, up until the day he died, he had a steady gig. And I'm like, I want that to be me. That's my hero, man. Those are my heroes. And these are the people. My, my true hero right now is a guy that I'm friends with, who is David Amram. He was a, a classical composer, a jazz French horn player, a film scorer, um, a writer. Uh, he hung with Jack Kerouac. He hung with Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. He's done everything. He just turned 89 years old. And oh, I just guy. sat in with him. Yeah, exactly. I sat in with him in Los Angeles doing a gig. Um, he's doing Folk Alliance. He comes to all the festivals. He comes to the, most of the music conferences. Uh, plays Penny Whistle on everybody's stuff. He is just one of those figures. He's the real thing and has lived an entire life of music and art. Um, I am blessed that he considers me a friend and he calls me pops. And it's, I'm just sitting there like I'm hanging around with, he hung out with Dizzy Gillespie, man. He calls and I'm sitting there going, he calls me pops. And so I'm just going, this is what it's all about. Um, he's my hero. If I can go till I'm 89, I'm going to be the happiest man in the world. Well, here's to your happiness, Dan. It's good, great talking Thanks, to you. You too, brother. Uh, look forward to the next time I get to hang with you. Uh, it's going to happen. I'll, I'll be cool, there. Man. You got it. Well, I'm at my gig, so I'm going to go inside and set up and, and uh, so what set it up again. No, I know like actors always say break a leg. What, what do we say? Break a string? Is that, that break bad? a string? People say, but I and I like break a leg. Um, you know, my favorite is is uh, don't fuck up, uh, which is a good one. Um, I'll actually I say I will say bust a gam or snap a pin or something that's you know a little jazzbo way of saying break a leg. Gotcha. But um, and there are two schools of thought thought about break a leg. One of them is it's the opposite of what you really want because to say good luck in the theater is like saying Macbeth in the theater. It's a ticket to bad luck. Right. Someone else told me a story that that in in the royal court when a woman curtsied. She bent a knee and that and when men would bow, they would also bend a knee like a curtsy, not just a straight bow with stiff legs. So the whole idea was be lucky enough to be in the presence of the king or the queen, break a leg, bend a knee. Uh -huh. I don't know if that's accurate, but I like it. That works. Because it works. And it's all about the whole idea is, again, and I've said this repeatedly and I'll continue to, we get to do this. It's not a matter of whether we have to. If you have the energy and the stomach and the uh, bandwidth and the sense of humor for the road, you're never going to want to come off it. Well, and for me, the tough one was um, when I was uh, 44, 
when I was 43, I got married. When I was 44, um, we had a son. And um, leaving them behind, we never did the three-month touring that the big guys would do, where you usually had the trappings to be able to bring people with you. Um, but we would do, when we first got together, we would do six weeks. Once my son was born, we would stop at 25 days. And that diminished over time. Uh, I will say I got divorced in 2002. Um, and Eric in 2004 contracted Lou Gehrig's disease. From that, from 2004 on for 10 solid years, uh, I did nothing but five days every two weeks. Leave on a Wednesday, play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, go home on Monday. Nine days home, five days out, nine days home, five days out. Lather, rinse, repeat. Where were you and, for the five days out? Uh, uh, I, we would go wherever. We would fly to Chicago, do five shows around the area. Go to Minnesota, do five shows around the area. Go to D.C., do five shows around the area. Denver, Phoenix, upstate New York, um, New England, uh, Seattle, Texas. But we would go out for five-day runs because his stamina couldn't handle doing more than that. Yeah. And I also, it also meant that I didn't have to prevail upon my ex-wife to do several weeks and jeopardize blowing a stinky into the custody arrangement. I toured on my free time in a 50-50 custody arrangement. So we would trade off weeks and I would do five days on my week of free. Of free. So I was a full-time, half-time dad after divorce. Uh, my son didn't have to want for me because he didn't see me when he was normally not going to see me. How old is your son now? He's 23. He lives in New York City. He graduated at NYU a year ago. I will say my divorce went way better than my marriage. My ex-wife and I are really good friends. Uh, we raised him well because we prioritized his needs. And changing touring was prioritizing his needs rather than saying, sorry, I got to be out for three weeks. And she had to have him for three weeks in a row. And then me having him for three weeks in a row would have been tough. Right. Plus, and if I wouldn't do that, it's like, okay, you got him three weeks in a row and now we're going to trade weeks. Then suddenly the balance was tipped and it was important for me to do 50-50. Any music but it worked uh, out. In, 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 in your kid? He's very musical. He plays guitar and bass. He plays bass better than he plays guitar, but he chose, he wants to be a filmmaker. So he got his degree in screenwriting from NYU. Uh, he still plays, but he's really a, a writer and a really good one. Um, he only just started singing a couple of years, right before he graduated college last year. He took he took a voice class at uh, NYU with my dear friend, Janice Bendarvis, who sang with Sting and Bowie and everybody. And, you know, he was saying, I'm looking for voice lessons. And I went, you know, the end, the, my friend Janice teaches at NYU and you're going there. So I asked her and she goes, yeah, I teach classes at NYU. So he took it. So basically we didn't pay for it. He took a class for credit. <laughs> Killer. What a deal. Yeah. He's a good one. But like I said, it's a, uh, you know, these elements of life dictate how we can do this. And so there were compromises that got made, but the compromises got made on the amount of free time I had, not in how I dealt with my family. People would say, well, how do you do this? I go, I don't sleep much. I sacrificed sleep. I sacrificed for, for 10 years. I didn't have any more than four days a month of true free time at home. So I didn't date for a long time because it just wasn't around. I would date somebody and go, yeah, I'll see you in, in a month and a half. As it is, I see somebody now who lives in Florida, and we manage to get to get about once a month, and that's what we do. But it's very difficult. But anyway, that's you know. So you make the compromises, but the compromise that's not going to be made is quitting uh, for reasons other than the desire to quit. And I don't have that desire to quit yet. So 
I keep doing it. No, as a matter of fact, uh, I was impressed by when you played at the living room, you did the entire thing without a, a physical intermission. I played straight through. I actually like intermissions really more to, you know, sell booze at the clubs or to sell merchandise. Um, Laura requested that we go straight through so it didn't go too late, which was fine with me. The other thing, and this is unusual for guys my age who are doing this, is I don't like sitting when I play. I'm the same way. I don't. I can't play sitting like, down. Yeah, I don't like sitting when I play. Um, it's it's kind of important to the energy level for me to stand. I can do it. It's just not as much fun for me as standing. And so that's what I do. And last night I wound up doing um, two one hour sets. The guy requested a third. He was paying us handsomely. We did a third that was just covers. And then afterwards I did the unplugged thing for about forty minutes. So I uh, I, I had a long night. Yeah, I call that pulling a Springsteen. Exactly, and I'm not complaining. Anyway, my brother, I'm at the house concert. All right, Dan, don't fuck up. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Okay, ladies and gentlemen, two words, Dan Navarro. I'll see you again in about three or four weeks. I'm going to take a little hiatus and record some new episodes. In the meantime, Have a healthy, happy holiday season. Drive safe. Speaking of driving, I'm going for a drive.